Hello, and welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host. This episode of Parallel is brought to you by Microsoft and Tuparev Technologies. Before we go on with the show, I want to acknowledge what's going on in the world today and say that I stand with those who are working to shine a light on institutional racism, especially those who have been standing up all along and who haven't gotten the attention of the wider world in the way that they should. And whether you're standing up by protesting in the streets or making art or shining a light on those who create art, I'm with you. The initial impetus for Parallel, and it continues to be a driving force behind why I do this show, is that people who care about the same things often continue to not talk to one another. And honestly, even when they do, they end up marginalizing people by discounting or condescending to them. Tech podcasting is and has been for a long time an incredibly insulated bubble People who are friends with one another, people who know each other, and people, frankly, who look a lot alike often are the leaders in our community and they amplify one another's voices. I was frustrated by that and I wanted to create parallel so that people whose voices weren't heard on networks like Relay FM would have opportunities. We focus on disability and accessibility here, but it applies to gender and ethnicity as well. And there is an incredible amount of intersectionality that I don't think we've talked about on this show nearly enough. So a commitment that I want to make to you, my listeners, is to improve the diversity of the guests that join me here on Parallel. And I invite and encourage you to let me know about people whose voices should be heard and haven't been heard. But the only way real change happens is to listen to other people and what they make. The podcasts and the publications and the Twitter threads and the YouTube videos that people of color, people of genders and orientations different than yourself, people from different countries, people who speak different languages, listening to what they have to say and adding them to your diet of media, social and otherwise. So my challenge to you and my challenge to myself, frankly, is to listen to more creators who are not like yourself. I'm going to put some links in the show notes to great podcasts and other creative projects made by people of diverse backgrounds. Frankly, people who are doing surprising, amazing, hilarious things that I should have known about sooner. And you should, too. So check them out. And now on with the show. My guest today is Rob Whitaker. He is an iOS development engineer currently working for Capital One in the UK. He works on the company's credit card servicing app. Rob is also the author of a book called Developing Inclusive Mobile Apps. Rob, it's great to have you on the show. Hi, Sally. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. I wanted to talk to you because while I think we all agree, at least anybody who listens to this show probably does, and, and most people who think about it agree that accessibility is very important, we rarely get into the nitty-gritty of how it works, why it works, or why it doesn't work. And so that's some of what I wanted to talk to, to Rob about. But first, why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself, how you became a developer, and how accessibility became something that you're focused on? Sure. So, um, yeah, as you say, I work for Capital One in the UK um, and um, I work on their mobile credit card app. Um, so uh, that's something I'm really kind of privileged to be able to uh, focus on accessibility with that. They give me a lot of freedom to 
kind of look at the app and go, you know, I think we can make that bit a bit more accessible. And what if we change this bit around? And I get a lot of support from them to be able to do that. So I'm really grateful for that. Um, for me, um, accessibility, um, really, it started to be something I was uh, getting interested in when um before I started as a, an iOS developer, um, I used to work at uh, an Apple store. Um, and this was a time with uh, the release of the iPhone 4 when Apple uh, released FaceTime. Um, and I noticed that um, the proportion of our customers whose first language was sign language um, kind of just doubled overnight. Um, and I never really thought too much about it for, for a little while. And I, I kind of realized after um, interacting with a few of these customers that the reason why this was happening was because um, the FaceTime was allowing them then to use a phone like the rest of us would have used a phone. Um, and that kind of got me really thinking about um, what accessibility meant and what it meant to be able to use technology. Um, so it's, it's that it's not just about um, you're being able to use a screen reader, but there's all these extra features like FaceTime, um, which you know you don't necessarily think of, or a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think of, as being an accessibility feature. But really, for a lot of people, unlocks that device for them. I think among developers who don't focus on accessibility, there's a misconception that it's hard to do, that it's something extra. And I'm not going to ask you to say yay or nay to that, but I, I guess I wonder what in your experience and knowing other developers and sort of learning about accessibility yourself is something that is a further misconception or something that developers kind of really believe but maybe have wrong about the way one would add accessibility to an app. I think uh, you're right that um, there are certainly developers out there that think accessibility is either difficult or think that accessibility is something that you can kind of come to later, um, you know, as a kind of an extra add-on, an additional feature uh, kind of thing. But um, yeah, it, I, I would say that's probably not really true. Um, accessibility is certainly something that you use far better off baking in right from the very start. And I think for a lot of uh, developers, it's not so much that they don't want to do it. Um, a lot of the time I find um, from people that I speak to that it's that they're, they're just not really sure how to do it because they're not people who use voiceover, um, or at least a lot of developers are not people who use voiceover um, as you know, their main way of, of interacting with an app or you know, whatever other assistive technology there might be. Um, it's just not an experience that a lot of developers have. Um, and so they don't have that kind of mindset of thinking about it in this way sometime. And so for them, it's quite um, almost like a scary thing to, to approach because um, it's this completely new paradigm of interacting with their device. Um, in reality, it's the basics of using something like VoiceOver is actually really not that complicated. Um, and there are definitely uh, a lot of extra parts to it. There's definitely a lot of extra advanced features. And that's one of the reasons why I listen to your podcast, because I'm not a VoiceOver user. I don't know um, how to use these things necessarily. Um, but I'll listen to your podcast and someone will say, oh, I use this VoiceOver feature. And I'll think, oh, I don't know that one. I'm going to look up how to use that. Um, and it's the same with other things like uh, um, you know, knowing how invert colors works and things like that, and knowing there's different types of inverting colors. Um, 
you know, uh, as someone who uses voice uh, invert colors yourself, you'll know that there are different ways of inverting colors on the iPhone, whereas a lot of developers don't necessarily know that. Um, and a lot of these things are just toggles and there's just a few steps to enable them and learn how to use them. So it's something that people can get used to really quickly. Um, but it's just that first step of they see, oh, I don't know, voiceover, it kind of changes how it works. I'm not really sure how to do that. And so they, they just don't look at it. That's an interesting way to express the challenge. It is like you're making something for somebody other than yourself, most of the, most of the time, if you're writing software, you're you're somebody who uses software. And even if you write software that you personally don't use, the concepts are pretty uh, easy to pass along from one to another. But if you don't have that background in, you know, what's voiceover, what's invert colors, how does a hearing aid interact with an iPhone? And I'm not even sure I know all of the answers to those questions. Then you're it, it's a little bit like, and I use this example because I know developers who've worked in this way, it's, it seems like it's a little bit like internationalizing your app. So you're an English speaker, but you have to turn your app into something that can work in another language that might even use another alphabet. And you understand why that's a good idea, but it's hard if you're not a native speaker. Yeah, so I think um, uh, maybe to sort of uh, anchor this in a, in a point in time, but um, with what's happening um, particularly in the US at the moment, um, with uh, Black Lives Matter, it, a lot of that is down to representation. Um, that um, there's a lot of um, people who just don't get represented in in media and in culture, and um, you know are, are just not given the opportunities that they should be. Um, and that is because uh, that is causing a kind of a vicious cycle. Um, and that's similar to, I think, with accessibility, because um, there are not people with disabilities um, or not as many people with disabilities working in, in software jobs um, as there perhaps should be, that you just don't get that representation within software that's made. And so you end up with this vicious cycle of um, apps and software just not being made accessible because as you say you have to kind of have that level of empathy of knowing that you're making software for other people and don't get me wrong I'm not sort of saying that software engineers are completely ambivalent to this and just don't know it's happening software engineers definitely know they're making it for other people um, but without that experience of, of knowing how um, people will use software in a way that's completely alien to how they would use it, um, it does mean that they lose out a little bit. Yeah, I was going to bring that up a little bit later in terms of, if not representation, sort of how you take accessibility that is well-meant and that is based on guidelines but might not actually be accessibility the way somebody needs to use it. And, and you mentioned invert colors. That's a good example. Low vision things are a good example in mobile platforms because you have certain sets of features that are documented and they're easy to understand, but the way individuals use those features together and with other accessibility features or with other features of the phone is going to vary based on their visual disability. And so sometimes I get frustrated when people get sort of credit for accessibility because they've ticked all the boxes, but they don't understand fundamentally how it's actually used in the real world. And the way I was going to phrase that when I got to my question a little bit later was to talk about testing and, and how developers can best make sure that 
the accessibility they've added to their apps works for real people. But before you can test, you have to develop. So I guess another part of that question would be, do you need to be somebody with a disability or do you need to have somebody in your shop with a disability to develop good code, develop good applications? So the the quick answer to that is no. Um, it's definitely something that um, a you know a completely you know non-disabled if you know you want to use that word a developer can uh, do um, and can certainly learn how to do. And you know a lot of people have to do it. It's there's guidelines, uh, the web content accessibility guidelines, which kind of tell developers you know these are the things you need to do to make a, an accessible app. Um, just because you know a, a lot of people don't have all of these experiences and even if it is someone who uses voiceover perhaps they're not necessarily going to have the experience of using switch control or etc so um, we do have these guidelines and these rules laid down of, of knowing how to do that and so it's absolutely something that people can learn to do um, but I would absolutely advocate for having more people with different abilities on software development teams and not just different abilities but just different experiences altogether really different life experiences because it all then helps to make software that's just a bit more rounded um but yeah um i would absolutely as well recommend doing user testing and that's by far the best option really for any team even if you do have a very well-rounded team um you know really with any piece of software to make sure that it's going to work for your users, you need to give it to your users and, and check that they can use it, really. They, they know how it's going to work. They can do the things that they want to use your app for. Um, and this is something that a lot of software development houses will do. Um, but one big gap in that is that um, a lot of these uh, user testing sessions are not using people with a range of abilities. Um, and that's really important um, to make sure that you have uh, people in your user testing pool who have um, you know, perhaps issues with their eyesight or um, can't hear so well or whatever. Um, and then that just means that you're getting a much more rounded view of, of what people uh, are going to, how people are going to use your app. Right, because as a sometimes voiceover user, I could probably test fairly well with voiceover, but I'm primarily a low vision user, so I'm going to have much different level of experience than I do as voiceover user, and I'm certainly not qualified to be a switch control tester, even though I have used switch control for the purposes of writing about it. So yeah, it feels you can't you can't say one person with an accessibility need is going to be the extent of your testing if you want to be fully accessible. Yeah, absolutely. This episode of Parallel is brought to you by The Uptake, a new show from Microsoft about tech and community. So I'm a sucker for a new podcast, and I have way too many podcasts in my podcatcher of choice, but I, I learn a lot, and finding new shows brings me a great deal of joy. And I want to tell you about one from Microsoft. It's called The Uptake. And it focuses on topics in the world of tech, as well as professional learning, development, and community building. Each episode features members of the tech community, and topics are pretty fun and interesting. Each show features a focused topic, guest interviews, local and global community news, plus updates on events, conferences, and more. And one of the latest episodes was part of Global Accessibility Awareness Day and making accessibility a priority when designing and building software. And you know that's close to our hearts here at Parallel. 
I really enjoyed the episode. I got to hear the perspective of Microsoft folks who advocate for accessibility, not only explaining the value of accessibility, but giving some guidance and help for people who might want to incorporate accessibility into the way they develop software or do other projects within their companies. So I thought it was a really worthwhile conversation, and you should check it out. Go and listen to The Uptake now. You can find it wherever you find podcasts. Just search for The Uptake, U-P-T-A-K-E, or click the link in the show notes. Check it out. Our thanks to The Uptake and Microsoft for their support of Parallel and all of Relay FM. So we talked about how developers, as often as not users of accessibility, are at a disadvantage there. So I guess my question would be, if you are a developer who's thinking about learning enough about accessibility to incorporate it into your apps or at least to prevent your apps from being inaccessible, would you have them go and dig into the developer documentation for the operating system or other information that's out there? Or would you have them actually spend time trying to use the features and and learn as a user would? I think I would probably suggest splitting time between the two. And there's a a reason for that. it's definitely worth any developer's time or any quality engineer's time um, to uh, work through their app using accessibility features. Um, But a lot of people are not necessarily going to understand exactly why someone would use a certain accessibility feature. Um, So um, there was one big revelation um, for me, when I was kind of first really looking into mobile accessibility, which um, seems just blindingly obvious, but for some reason it just hadn't occurred to me until um, a voiceover user told me, um, was that um, obviously if you're a voiceover user, you're either not going to be able to see the screen at all, or you're going to be able to see very, very little of the screen. Um, And so it all matters about the context. When uh, anyone who's sighted, and I'm sure even yourself with uh, limited vision, you get context by seeing um, what is around the screen, um, what other elements are on the screen, what order they're in, um, if there's any icons or anything like that. And all of that adds into making the screen make sense. Um, so that um, you know a, a bit of color or an icon or something like that can draw your eye, or if you've got some text and a title, you can see by the order that that's in, you know how important that bit of text is. Um, but if you're just using VoiceOver, you don't have any of that context unless the accessibility is good. Now you can um, do similar kind of things by um, marking certain elements on the screen as being, say, a title. Um, that means you can skip through titles really easily. Um, but it's super important to make sure that everything is in the right order for voiceover and that you don't have things um, in the voiceover hierarchy that detract from that order. So maybe if you've got a, an icon, you probably don't want it to read the name of that icon because it's not adding anything to the meaning of the screen. Um, and if you're not a regular voiceover user, um, even if you, you know, know how to use voiceover really well, you might come to that icon, voiceover reads the name of the icon, and you think, well, great, I've made that accessible because that image, you know, someone who can't see that image, they know what that image is because it's got a title. Was actually, in reality, it probably would be better 
to just not give that a title and just focus on the text next to it because that's where the meaning is. Um, and so that's why I'd recommend going more into the documentation. Um, so it's super important that developers and quality engineers and really anyone involved in making software knows how to use accessibility features. But the, the documentation um, from Apple or Google or whoever um, really goes into a lot more detail about what the accessibility features available are and when to use them. And particularly with Apple's videos um, from WWDC, uh, they go into a, a huge amount of detail about how to make the real most out of those features. Um, so, for example, last year there was a, a, a video um, from an Apple engineer called Jordan, who uh, she's uh, a voiceover user, and I think she used a Braille keyboard as well. And she was explaining exactly how to uh, make the best quality voiceover labels um, that really worked best for her, when to use them, when not to use them, when to use short ones, which is generally the best option, and when to use really long ones. Because um, you know, most of the time we, we would say is accessibility um, experts say use short labels, but actually she was giving examples of when long labels are actually best. Um, and it's, it's kind of that form of, it's like playing jazz, right? So to be able to play really great jazz where you're kind of messing with the form, you need to have the absolute fundamentals down. Um, and that's what the, the documentation from Apple and Google are going to give you there. See, that's good to hear because when I hear you give those examples and put myself in the place of a developer who doesn't know anything about voiceover, I think that's where the developer goes, I I don't know this language. I don't know this musical notation for whatever metaphor that, that you like in the same way that I wouldn't presume to design a house with the level of vision I have because I don't know that I could make architectural drawings that would be meaningful. And that language is not available to me. And and I, I'm, it's, it's good to hear that, that Apple specifically is providing that level of detail. Obviously, as a developer, you have to have made the commitment that you're going to go watch those videos or going to attend those sessions or somehow get that information. But uh, that's, I, I, and that, that does lead into my next question, which was going to be to ask you to give me sort of an overview of what is available to developers on the iOS and Android platform to sort of help them get into the, wade into the accessibility waters, if you will. In terms of helping, um, do you mean like um, in terms of learning more about what they can do? In, in I, I guess I mean straight up developer documentation and resources for people who say, I want to make apps that are accessible. Uh, obviously, they've documented the mobile operating systems in many different ways. But what is the, for somebody who's specifically interested in accessibility, what's available to them from a developer documentation point of view? So um, both Apple and Google document all of their accessibility APIs. Um, developer documentation can be somewhat mixed. Um, Apple have a bit of a reputation for maybe not detailing everything that they could do. Um, although a lot of their accessibility documentation is generally pretty good, although there are some bits missing. Um, Google documentation, I find personally sometimes goes the other way and uh, it explains so much. I find it's a bit too much to take in and often uh, I find it a bit incomprehensible. Um, but there's a lot of documentation on either Apple's developer website or on Google's uh, developer website or the Android developer website. Um, Personally, I find um, 
the, the videos from either Google I.O. or from uh, WWDC um, are usually the best um, to, to kind of find out about what the, uh, the, the platform vendors really intend for you to, to use the APIs for. Um, but the, there's plenty of other options available as well, plenty of uh, kind of third-party uh, guides online. Um, a lot of the, the uh, big uh, sites that um, offer help with uh, coding for either platform do cover accessibility regularly. It's not always perfect advice, but um, I, I think it kind of gets people in on the right track at least. And are there people at Apple or Google, are there other ways to communicate with the Apple and Google accessibility engineers, whether it be in person or via some sort of online forum, or is it just a matter of reading documentation? Uh, so they, recently, uh, Apple did have a, uh, a an online conference, which um, uh, has been said that it might have been a warm up for their upcoming online WWDC. But uh, they, I think, claim it was definitely uh, its own standalone event. But they did have a, a, an event for a couple of hours online talking about accessibility. And uh, unfortunately, I was too late to sign up. I did get the invite, but. Uh, I thought, oh, it's accessibility. There won't be that many people sign up. And I was completely wrong. And by an hour in, by the time I clicked on the link, all the places had gone. But um, that, I hear, um, was kind of um, a presentation by Apple engineers. And they had the option for breakout rooms so that if you had a particular question, you could go and ask an Apple engineer directly through there. So that sounds like that would have been a really productive session. WWDC is uh, a great place when you can go physically um, because you can actually see Apple engineers face-to-face from their accessibility team. Um, There are some accessibility engineers from uh, Apple on uh, things like Twitter where you can kind of ask them informally, but um, uh, Apple are not always the... uh, uh, most understanding of, of things like that. But um, unfortunately, aside from that, there's there's not perhaps a, a ton of ways that you can interact with uh, um, either platform uh, as engineers to ask them questions directly, unfortunately. Um, Apple do have um, uh, an email address, which I think is accessibility at apple.com, which I have right. emailed a couple of times and they've been nice enough to send me some uh, kind of general advice back, but nothing too technical. Yeah, that email address, Apple itself always promotes that people use it, and it sounds like something you say to placate people, but everybody I've talked to who has interacted with that email address has had good things to say, and I'm talking about both users and developers, so obviously they have a team of people moving those, routing those emails to the proper place, and they, they seem to take it seriously. Yeah, What about absolutely. Google I.O.? Do they, do they have similar kinds of sessions or programs for accessibility? Yeah, so Google I.O. Um, do have uh, regular um, video updates uh, on, on their conference uh, about new accessibility features. Um, there is a guy called Victor who works there at the moment as a, a program manager, I believe, who um, uh, does a lot of these kind of videos and uh, does a lot of videos after the sessions as well, um, which are available on, on the Android developer website. Um I have never been to a Google I.O. Well, I've never been to WWDC either, to be fair, but I've never been to a, a Google I.O. And um, it's not something I know too much about. So I don't know if they have um, one-on-one sessions with their engineers like they do at WWDC, but I certainly hope so. How do you approach a new version of an operating system, which it probably will have some sort of new accessibility features or, or, or at least changes that affect the way you would 
work with accessibility. But as a developer, how do you think about a new version of the operating system and learn what you need to know to make sure that your apps continue to be supported? So uh, this is something that Apple do usually focus uh, on on quite a bit at uh, WWDC. They will often, um, as part of uh, the the platform State of the Union, which is um, kind of the second big talk from WWDC. It's never the one that gets the uh, the headlines, but it's the one that all the developers are most excited. It's about. the good one. I went last year. <laughs> it was it was great. There was a lot of accessibility in it. In fact, <laughs> there is there is always a lot of accessibility in the platform State of the Union, um, and they in the way that really only Apple can, they make it seem very cool. So they they make a lot of these accessibility features feel like things that developers really want to engage with. Um, and so uh, a lot of the time with new accessibility features, so last year we had voice control um, and we had uh, differentiate without color, which um, to differentiate without color, um, it's kind of, it's not like a super headline feature, right? It's not like mega cool, like um, being able to control your device just with your voice. Um, and it's not like something everybody knows about, like switch control and voiceover. Um, but it's a, it's a really important thing for a lot of people. You know, if you're colorblind or if you're low vision, being able to tell what something means without using color is incredibly important. Um, and Apple kind of presented that in a way that really meant that a lot of developers are like, yes, this is really exciting. I'm definitely going to implement that in my app. Um, and that's really what Apple do best at, um, you know, just making things seem cool and making developers want to uh, implement them in their app. And they give that exact same treatment, um, you know, at the same headline level to all their new accessibility features. But does that enthusiasm translate into the information that you need to actually implement it? Um, it? It can do. Um, things can change between uh, WWDC and the time that the uh, software is actually released to the public. Um, so some things do change. Um, and there's always uh, kind of extra things, you know, extra detail that Apple just can't cover uh, at WWDC because they only get so much time on stage, right? It's it's you know slightly less than a week WWDC, and there's a, there's a load of sessions, but um, you know there's only so much you can fit into those sessions. So there's always extra things to discover, and there's always a lot of excitement about around WWDC. And around uh, Google I.O. as well from uh, engineers afterwards wanting to explore these new features. So it is something that a lot of uh, developers will um, document themselves afterwards and, and, and blog about online. So although we don't always get all of the right information from Apple, it's usually out there if you look within a couple of weeks of WWDC happening. So when people like me write about accessibility, we tend to write about features, new features, updated features, changed features for the user. But I, I'm wondering if, from a developer point of view, if there are things that are happening with iOS or Android that have made accessibility easier or, or different lately. Has, have, have things been going on under the hood that, that have implications for us? Uh, so for developers, um, I mean, this is uh, maybe not something, well, definitely not something that the average user will be even be aware of. Um, someone, you know, an Apple uh, kind of uh, 
watcher like yourself maybe has uh, probably heard of it, but I don't know if you'd know all of the details necessarily because it's just not something that if you're a developer is really all that exciting. But um, at last year at WWDC, Apple uh, announced a framework called Swift UI. Um, and Swift UI is a, a new way of building user interfaces. Um, so previously we'd um, make them with a, a WYSIWYG editor by dragging things around, or you, you can make them in code, um, but it was quite long-winded to do that, and the, um, it was quite a, a kind of a level, a level of effort involved in doing that. With Swift UI, um, it's all done in code, um, and there's no kind of sort of WYSIWYG uh, element to that. It's just you, you lay out, um, I want a button, and then I want some text, and then whatever. Um, and that is something that, um, for, as a developer, uh, it's a really nice addition to be able to do that because it makes it a lot simpler, a lot quicker to build up interfaces. Um, but it really strips away um, the the difference between the what and the how. So um, you're by using code to uh, develop UI, um, you're saying what I want on screen is a button and a label. Um, and then iOS or Mac OS or tvOS goes away and goes, okay, they want a button and a label, I'm going to do a button and a label. Um, which means that we as developers then don't have to think about exactly how that's implemented. Um, the operating system does that for us. And the real benefit of that is because most UI is going to be um, experienced visually on a screen, um, but also we can remove that screen entirely um, and just experience that through voiceover and because we're just saying with swift ui i want a button and some text we can just pass that exact code straight to voiceover and go hey voiceover here's a button here's some text whereas the current way of doing it um it's uh, voiceover kind of builds a model on top of the ui that's already been drawn it's already been made um, and so it sometimes misses things out a little bit um, so swift ui because of that ability to essentially just tell voiceover exactly what's there and voiceover can do what it needs to to present that the best way possible or switch control or voice control as well um, it means that um, uh, it has a, a much higher level of accessibility built in. Swift UI is not something that every developer will be supporting right now, um, but it's definitely something that Apple developers are, are really excited about. Um, and just by using that, because of a lot of the decisions that Apple have made in that, and because Apple included accessibility engineers as part of the core team that helped, that worked on that, um, it means that really any app that's built using SwiftUI would just out of the box have a much higher level of accessibility without the developer then having to add extra things on top. It sounds like that would also promote consistency of experience for the user, which would benefit somebody who's low vision or who's using some other alternative method of accessing the device, whether it be switch control or voice control, right? You're, you're going to get a much greater level of consistency because the developer is not going off on his own designing as many visual objects. They're just pointing at things and saying, do it the way the operating system says to do it. So developers definitely can do that. Um, it's not going to stop people designing uh, bad accessible experiences, but it's going to make it certainly harder. Um, yeah, if you just take elements out of the box, 
Um, in Swift UI, you're definitely going to have a much better experience and a much more consistent experience than taking elements out of the box in the, the previous UI kit um, kind of way of doing things. Um, but um, it is definitely going to be possible for developers and designers to build things that are not as accessible as they could be. This episode of Parallel is brought to you by Tuperev Technologies. Tuperev Technologies strongly believes technology should be accessible to everyone. Since the founder of the company wrote the first Braille display driver for the Next Step operating system almost 30 years ago, writing accessible software has been a priority for them. They aim to help others write better, more accessible software in a variety of fields such as education, personal assistance, and home delivery. They help their partners and clients by designing software for people with different disabilities, implementing accessibility in existing and new software products, testing existing apps and websites for correct accessibility implementations, and guiding your team to create accessible software. They offer services for iOS, macOS, watchOS, tvOS, and the web. To learn more, go to tuperev.com slash parallel. That's tuperev, T-U-P-A-R-E-V dot com slash parallel to learn more about Tuperev's accessible apps. Our thanks to Tuperev Technologies for their support of this show, and all of Relay FM. Can you talk about uh, material in the Android world? Before we got online today, I was actually just skimming your book and was beginning to read about uh, material and how that affects uh, building user interfaces in Android. Yeah, so material is um, uh, really a, a design language um, that uh, Google have developed for Android. Um, and it, it really helps um, with consistency. So consistency is, is incredibly important. Uh, it kind of expands on, on your previous question, um, particularly for people with low vision who um, you know, can't necessarily see that something is different, um, or particularly for people um, with anxiety where big context changes can be a bit disconcerting, or people with autism, for example. Uh, context changes, you know, changes between big changes between the way things look or the way things function um, can be a real barrier to, to them being able to use your app um, so what material design does with from Google is it it gives you this suite of components um, much like uh, UIKit does on iOS to be honest but um, material design gives you this suite of components that Google have built um, using their expertise of designing good user interfaces um, and designing interfaces with accessibility built in. Um, and that means that if you stick with the elements that they've provided, um, you're going to get just a, a better level of accessibility than if you built everything from scratch yourself. Now, it's not perfect. Uh, there are definitely some issues with Google's um, UI design and Google's accessibility that's built into those controls. Exactly the same as, same as there is with Apple. You know, not all of Apple's components are perfect, but they're definitely better than any single developer could make or even a lot of teams of developers could make because they've got all of this experience behind them and then if you build on top of that you've got all that built in and then if google fix some of the issues down the line then you'll have that already there as well so um yeah material design um it, it's uh, this design language from from google um and sticking with that is, is definitely going to give you the best experience on on 
really any Google platform. Um, there is a slight weird thing with material design that um, Google do recommend you use it on iOS, which is absolutely the wrong thing to do because then any customers, any people that are going to be using your app, they're going to come out of iOS and be thrown into a, a, an Android-like experience in your iOS app, which is going to be an incredible context switch for anyone. Um, so definitely don't use it on iOS. But on Android, stick with Material Design um, and just develop on top of it. Uh, on iOS, stick with UIKit or Swift UI and expand on that make the most of it rather than kind of reinventing the wheel because um, chances are you're going to miss out on the accessibility spoke in the uh, wheel that you've reinvented i don't know just as an aside i don't know if you know anything about this but one of my great frustrations as an ios user is google's apps google's design of its own ios apps because they seem to break a lot of apple rules and clearly they're not material apps they're you know they're ios apps but they they're odd, especially they don't support dynamic type, things like that. And I, I just shake my head because the experience I have when I talk to people who work on Google accessibility in the Android realm is real. I've never talked to anybody who works on their, their iOS apps but uh, they, for, for in terms of accessibility, but uh, it, it seems like it's a different universe. Yeah, I have never um, really assessed the accessibility on, on any of Google's iOS apps. Um, but I do have the, the same uh, uh, experience that you do when I open one of their iOS apps and I go, this just feels weird. Um, yeah, just for, for that exact reason, it's Google's own um, UI components and UI library sort of forced into iOS. And uh, there is a big context switch there that things just don't work quite how, how you expect them to. Um, and that's really where things I think kind of get a little bit insidious because um, it, it's not that different, right? It's just a slight change on, on certain things, but it's they all kind of add up that they, they just don't quite work exactly how you expect. Um, and when you, um, you know, if you have uh, an anxiety disorder um, and you kind of, you're used to how something works and then something works differently, well, that can be a trigger, something as simple as that. Um, you know, for, for someone like yourself who has low vision, um, you know, when you are um, used to knowing, um, you know, I, I obviously can't speak for exactly how your vision works, but um, you know, if you're used to seeing what uh, something that's tappable looks like on iOS, and then you suddenly go into an app where you can't see anything that looks like that signature, what are you going to do there? Yeah, it's it's a it's a challenge, and and I guess the reason it's so noticeable from Google is that it's Google, and their apps are consistent within their own universe, and you're always going to have a Google app or two on iOS, whereas another developer might do it, and you're only you're, you for one thing you have a choice. You might decide, well, I don't want to use their app, and for another thing, you're probably not using four of their apps. You're probably just using one. So, so I, one thing I wonder about is. If you're a developer going along, building an app, you're following the quote-unquote rules, you're using SwiftUI or Material or, or whatever might be considered standard tools for the operating system that you're working in and you're not violating UI guidelines that exist, Is are the chances pretty good that you're going to have a somewhat accessible experience or does do developers typically need to 
make a special effort to at least get minimal accessibility? It depends on what your aim is with the app. Um, so where things uh, need a little bit more investigation is where you have changed things from the standard. So you can build an app um, that has uh, text and buttons and sliders and, and whatever controls that you want in there. And you can just use the standard platform controls from, from Android or from Apple. Um, and that will give you then a, a really a pretty good level of accessibility. It's not going to be perfect. You probably still want to check over it, but it's going to be pretty good. Um, but it's going to look very boring. And so to make an app stand out these days, um, developers really have to, um, with the help of, uh, well, I say help with um, really the vast majority of the work coming from, from UX designers, of really making an app look great. Um, and that's a really important piece of software these days. It's something that everybody expects, you know, the software they're, they're using to look and feel great when they're using it. People aren't going to use software that just looks boring. Um, but that means that you've got to then make customizations on top of the standard controls that are provided to you by the system. And that's when you need to double check things. So a lot of times, um, so there was a, an app that I was actually looking at uh, today, which was um, an app that had like a, a tab bar across the top. So um, it, there was four selections across the top. Um, one of them is selected, and then there's three which are unselected, and you can tap on one of them and it will select that and show you something different on the screen. Um, and that's a pretty common control in iOS um, that you can... You know, uh, they call it a segmented control. Um, so you've got this uh, four segments, you tap on it, and it shows something different. Um, that has a really high level of accessibility built in from Apple because um, you know they, they tell voiceover or switch control or voice control which of those four elements is selected. It knows that they're all buttons. So you know when you navigate it with voiceover, it will say, this is a button, um, and that you can tap on it. And it's really obvious that if you activate that, something's going to change on the screen. Um, but unfortunately, the, in this particular app, um, the, the people who'd made it hadn't used a segmented control. They built their own control um, by just taking standard views, which so a view is just a thing that you can see on the screen. There's nothing special to it. It doesn't do anything. It's just uh, basically just a rectangle and you can add things to it, but it's basically just a rectangle. And because it's just a rectangle on screen, it doesn't really have any accessibility built into it. And so they built it up with using these views and added a few things into it. But because they'd done that, they didn't have all of this level of accessibility that Apple had built in. So um, they could have done that by just using a segmented control and changing its appearance. So the, the, the principle here is to, um, so in, in programming, you'd call it subclassing. So subclassing is um, you take a thing and then you subclass it to add extra things to it. Um, and if they'd subclassed this segmented control to add the design they wanted to it, they'd have got all of this accessibility for free. But because they chose to do it using views, from the very lowest level they possibly could, um, 
they haven't got any of this and they need to build all of that in themselves. So they've actually made their job a lot harder um, by not using what Apple had already provided. That's interesting. I want to talk about a couple of things that we addressed briefly earlier, but and, and I know almost nothing about this area, but you've mentioned it a couple of times, so I'm thinking maybe you have some insights to offer. But we think of disability as a physical thing, whether it be motor disability or vision or, or hearing, but there's more and more talk about how to address cognitive disabilities or uh, mental disabilities. And I'm wondering what what is the sort of the state of the art about understanding that? Are there resources out there that people can go to? And, and how do you approach it as a developer? Uh, this is uh, a really difficult uh, kind of topic, I think, to to know what the right answer is. Um, so there are definitely a lot of headlines out there that kind of tell you that you know smartphones are, are going to make you stupid and are going to um, kind of cause a breakdown and all that kind of stuff. And in reality, it's it's not really as simple as that. I mean, nothing ever is, right? But um, it, there is uh, one uh, very good piece of research um, uh, by someone called No N O E, um, and I'm afraid I don't remember any of the the other details of the paper, but I do reference it several times in the book. So if you want to buy developing inclusive mobile apps, then you'll have all the details there. Maybe we'll put it in the show notes. That'll <laughs> yes, be we will. just better than the cheap plug. Um, so uh, that is really the the probably only kind of detailed. Um, scientific study that I've found um, and really the only what I think is really very good quality um, resource that I found on this and and what that says is using the internet and using smartphones um, a lot can cause um, problems um, for people um, you know, if you are really addicted to, to using your smartphone it, it is going to cause you some some long-term problems potentially um, but actually that's a real extreme end. And what there really is, is a lot of people in the middle, which is where a lot of us are, um, where actually using smartphones regularly really in, improves our lives. It helps us to connect with people and so improves our, our social uh, interactions with people. Um, and, you know, it, it allows us to do something like this where we're on completely other sides of the world. Um, and it, it's just something that kind of, really helps people to connect and helps people maintain their social relationships, which is um, obviously essential for, for good mental health. Um, and what they actually find is that um, if you kind of go the other way and just don't use the internet at all, that you kind of, you get this dip again. So it's kind of like a, a bell curve. Your people who never use the internet actually tend to have, and, and never use smartphones, tend to have worse mental health than people who use it in moderation. I mean, it's the same with a lot of things, right? Um, so it's a very kind of difficult thing to know what the answer is. And, and they also say that you can't really say a smartphone is, is causing uh, problems with people's mental health because really these days a smartphone is everything. You do everything on a smartphone. You make phone calls and keep in touch with people. You do your online banking. Um, you know Whatever you do on a smartphone, it's basically everything is there these days, right? So you can't say you know a smartphone is, is making you uh, ill because that the smartphone is, is our world these days. Um, so the answer is I, I really don't know. There is 
research being done. Um, your people like Apple and Google are putting work into um, trying to improve people's mental health while using smartphones by putting in things like screen time, which means that you can add limits to um, you know, things like social media um, and um, you know, things like uh, saying that you, you can only use the phone for a certain amount of time per day, which I think is great, but it's not going to work for everyone. Um, but it's definitely an essential tool for a lot of people. Um, but the, the real answer is that we really don't, at the moment, I think, know um, how to make apps uh, and software good for people's mental health. Um, we're probably not doing tons to make people's mental health worse. I know that might go against a lot of received uh, wisdom at the moment, um, but we're probably not doing as bad a job as we might think, but we can definitely do better. But knowing what we can do to do better, I think, is incredibly difficult. And I assume there are separate issues to do with cognitive disabilities or disabilities or anxiety disabilities that might not have to do so much with using the phone or the, the content on the phone as some element of user interface or even something as simple as reduced motion, which is usually perceived as something that helps somebody visually. I, I can see how animations on a device or some sort of sudden or unexpected kind of movement might be a challenge for somebody who has a pre-existing cognitive disability. Yeah, absolutely. Um, iOS has a great feature. Um, uh, oh, I can't even remember what it's called now. Um, I do apologize. Let me unlock my phone and I'll find out. Um, oh, I don't even have it enabled. Um, I'm sure you will know from uh, your book, um, but it allows people to lock the phone down to a certain app. Um, or Guided uh, access, you're talking that's about. That's the one, yeah. yes. So guided access... Um, uh, is a really fantastic uh, feature for um, people with certain cognitive uh, abilities um, that allows them to, or allows their carers or, or parents or whatever to lock the phone down to a, a certain app or lock certain features on an app. Um, and that is something which um, is automatically supported by all apps on iOS. Um, but it's something that developers can really enrich and, and make it a, a much better experience by uh, facilitating it properly within the app. Um, and that really um, allows people to, uh, allows carers to lock apps down so that people can't access things that um, might they might find triggering in a certain way or you know things like you say uh, lock down uh, things like animations or videos or something like that if they need to. And then there are a lot of apps that people use with guided access, particularly in education settings for young kids or just anybody, say, on an autism spectrum. And those apps are designed specifically not only to provide their educational, meet their educational needs, but to not cause distractions that are that are unwanted. And those are very sophisticated and high level apps. And you combine that with uh, guided access and you, you know, you create an environment that's specifically for education, that, but that presumably could apply to home life as well. I think there are games as well and, and that sort of stuff. So, but that really depends on developers who are experts in this field as opposed to being an operating system feature. 
Yeah, absolutely. A guided access is definitely used a lot in education apps, um, and it is a fantastic feature for that, but it does have wider uh, uses as well, and it's something that I think a lot more apps could, could make good use of. I do, and I frankly wish Apple would update it. I, I feel like it's a little long in the tooth in terms of interface, and I think it would be interesting if you could create something equivalent to Spaces on macOS where maybe you have a couple of apps that are allowed or you have you know, different ways of controlling because it's not as granular as it might be. But I know for a lot of people, it's, it's pretty useful. I, uh, I noticed in your book that you talk about web standards, and I also know from emailing back and forth that you, you, don't, you say that you're not a, a web developer or, or dig deep into the weeds of web accessibility. So I don't want to talk about that in detail, but I do want to ask you how the existence of web accessibility standards and the degree to which more apps are, in fact, web apps affects mobile accessibility. So uh, the, the Web Standards Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, or WACAG, they're also they're, they're, they're commonly called, um, they are uh, a set of standards which were originally designed for the web, um, and they were developed by a, a huge range of people, um, you know, uh, people who were kind of researchers in this area and, and experts in terms of assessing it, as well as users as well, um, with their kind of experience of, of using apps. Um, and the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines um, were made, uh, I think the last release was uh, around about 2007, so really before smartphones were really a thing, So, which is one of the main reasons that they're called web content, because you know, smartphones weren't really a thing then. But So they, they do mention, they do reference the web quite a lot throughout them, but really they are essential, um, an essential guide to uh, saying what you need to do to make software accessible. Um, so they do cover um, certain elements that, that don't necessarily uh, make sense in terms of making native mobile apps. That, you know, in, in certain uh, times, they will reference things like browsers and you know, kind of web browsers, which obviously, you know, when, when it, you're talking about making a native mobile app, is not really a consideration. Um, but if you kind of break past the, um, you know, this is talking about you must make this web page accessible. You know, if you just replace web page with mobile app, really they, they still translate. Um, and they, they are working on a, on a newer version at the moment, uh, which should be out in, a, I think, a couple of years' time maybe. Um, and so that will cover mobile in a lot more detail. Um, but this is a, the WACAG is a checklist, uh, essentially, of, of kind of saying, in order to make a high quality accessible piece of software, you need to follow the guidelines in, in this guide that have been set out by these people who really know what they're talking about um, and have really kind of given you their experience uh, to say. Um, and th these are an essential tool um, because, uh, as we said earlier, no one person is ever going to know exactly what someone else's experience is going to be you know even if you are say a, a switch control user you're not necessarily going to know how to use voice control for example um you know if you're a voice control user you're not necessarily going to know what someone with autism is going to experience when they're using your app um and this uh WCAG guide really kind of breaks down all of that and and takes in as many perspectives as possible with a lot of research with people of different abilities to say, 
you know, if you make an app that does this, you really need to think about this, this, and this. Um, it's very big. Um, the full document is enormous. Um, I've never tried to read the whole thing. I'm sure some people have, um, but it would take an awfully long time. Um, but if you read through kind of the basics of it, that's really kind of super important to know, okay, I personally can't uh, know exactly what someone would want from my app, but if I follow these guidelines, I know I'm going to make an app that's going to work pretty well. Because it addresses everything from uh, navigation to also, there's all sorts of super incredibly detailed stuff about color and about contrast and just, you know, and there are a lot of tools that have been designed, development tools and testing tools that have been designed to take advantage of WCAG and to point out whether your your web page or your app, I guess apps too, but I know more about web pages, is, you know, fits within the standards. And it's, yeah, I've never tried to read it either. <laughs> yeah, the, the automated tools, um, that is definitely one area where the web really wins out over mobile. Um, in mobile, it's it's very difficult to make an automated tool that will uh, be able to check all of those things. And, and even in web, it, it, they're never going to be perfect. But of course. There, are de- there are definitely tools out there that, for web. And because of the way web works, where you can, you know, you're essentially downloading the code, these apps can read through that, that code and go, actually, maybe you should consider doing this. Um, there are tools like that in mobile, um, both Apple and Google have their own version. Uh, Accessibility Inspector um, is part of Xcode for Apple. Um, and uh, I believe it's called Accessibility Audit, I think, um, on, on Android, um, which is an app that you, you can just download from uh, the Google Play Store and you can run it against any app running on, on your Android phone, not even necessarily one that you've uh, made yourself. You can just run it against someone's app and know exactly where They've made accessibility mistakes. Um, they aren't ever going to be perfect just because of the way mobile, or native mobile particularly, works. Um, but they do give you a, a good um, hint of where to look and, and where to uh, you can possibly make improvements. One more uh, bit about uh, user testing. We talked about the importance of that earlier, but I can imagine a developer going, I don't know any people with motor disabilities or, or blind people, how do I find those people and how do I create a testing, testing program that will allow these outside testers to take a look at my app and give me feedback that's useful? Uh, so this is something that someone was asking me a couple of days ago and I, I kind of replied to them on Twitter and gave them my thoughts and then I've been thinking about it very nearly constantly through since then because I'm, I'm not sure I gave them the right answer then. The honest answer is... I'm not really sure. I don't know. Um, it, this isn't something that I have done, uh, I've been involved in personally in terms of uh, user testing and, and user testing um, with people with disabilities. It's something that I have kind of had the results of um, and something that I, I know is incredibly valuable um, for both the people uh, who uh, are making the apps and for, for the users. Um, but my honest answer is it, it's a a kind of a specialist thing. And I, I would suggest 
um, you know, if you're working in a larger organization, um, you would probably be doing um, user testing anyway. And so you really need to kind of reach out to, to the people doing that and saying, are you definitely making sure that our, our user testing pool has um, people in it with different abilities? Um, and if you're in a smaller organization, um, there are specialist user testing companies out there who can arrange all of this for you. So I definitely recommend looking out for those uh, organizations because they can really help you. Um, but in terms of doing it on a smaller scale, um, so uh, there's a, a guy called Dave Verwer who does a, a newsletter uh, every week about iOS development. So if you're an iOS developer, you'll you'll know of Dave Verwer. But uh, I heard him talk a few months ago, and he does user testing on his apps, and it's just him, uh, just him working on the apps. And the way he gets people involved is he um, offers people a, a twenty dollar Amazon gift card. Um, and he's doing a standard user testing. Uh, there's no reason why you can't reach out to people and um, you know f find people with different abilities as well using exactly the same technique, right? I mean, people with disabilities still like free stuff from Amazon. Um, so there's no reason why they wouldn't take you up on that offer. Um, you can always ask specifically. Um, it's not, you know, people with disabilities don't, um, they're, they're not scary. They're not different um you know then you can still ask them hey i just want your the the benefit of your experience um and so you can definitely reach out to people um and as long as you're polite some of them will get back to you um and then the other option as well um which i would absolutely um, really suggest to anyone to put in their app is to put some way of people being able to provide feedback um the uh, people who use accessibility features will pretty regularly come across apps that they want to be able to use but can't. Um, and that's incredibly frustrating for them. And so a lot of the time what they want to be able to do is tell someone about that. Um, and uh, there's an online community, uh, AppleViz, um, which I would definitely recommend any developer to just have a browse through the forums there every once in a while because it's full of people who have tried to use apps and gone, this app just doesn't work for me. Uh, and you can learn a lot from that. But if you put a, a, an email or a contact form in your app, people who have tried to use your app and can't for, for one reason or another, a lot of the time they will email you and say, you know, I was trying to use voice control, but I couldn't access this button. Um, and that's a, an invaluable way of getting feedback. It doesn't cost you as a developer anything at all to do that. I'll just throw in a, a few things I know having been on the other side of this, because as you say, there are specialist companies who will set up testing. And some of those companies actually contract with uh, large companies making apps. So you might be surprised. There's one I know of called Nobility here in Austin, and they will bring people in and have them and do testing on behalf of clients. Also, at various conferences where people with disabilities meet, say the National Federation of the Blind Convention or the CSUN conference in the spring, there are people there who are more than happy to spend an hour testing your app or your, your tool and uh, are happy to do so for cash or for cash equivalents. And I, you know, I, I hesitate to say it quite this way, but let's just face it, it's true. The, the unemployment rate among folks with disabilities is very high. And so not only are people often motivated by a desire to be helpful and make your app great, and they will give you excellent and very detailed feedback, 
but they also could use the cash. And I know people who uh, cobbled together a substantial portion of their income by doing user testing. And, and some of that is networking, sort of being in the place where people who are looking for that kind of testing are. Twitter is also a great place. There are all sorts of communities. Apple Viz is good. There's a, the VI phone list for iPhone uh, users who are blind. There's the eyes free list, which is the same kind of thing for Android. And it's, it's, it's funny because I, these are not things that people outside this community would know, which is why I mention them. But it's like once you unlock that door, there's just so much out there and so many people that are super eager to contribute. And I've done it, like I say, and it's really rewarding to do because once you start thinking like, uh, start thinking in terms of, you know, what are all the things that this app does and how does it do them and what would I like to see different? Because that's, and there's, there's something flattering about that. You're being asked, if you, if I could make this app better, how would I do it? And you get to tell them. So, so that's Absolutely. a motivation a lot of times for the user. The one thing I would add to that, um, which is always a bit of a worry. And this is why I, I kind of hesitate a little bit and say I'm not really sure I know the answer and why I kind of suggest to, to involve the experts. It, it, what worries me a little bit is that um, if if a developer has spent a lot of time making an app accessible based on what they've learned from Apple and, and some techniques they've picked up online or whatever, and they, they kind of, right, okay, okay, I know how to make my app accessible. And they spend a lot of effort making their app accessible. And then they go to uh, someone and say, hey, look, I've made my app accessible. Um, can you just check it for me? And then the, the person they've asked to, to check who, you know, maybe they're a voiceover user or a switch control user or whatever, uh, and they go, you know, actually, this doesn't work and, and this thing that you've changed here doesn't really work for me and it would be better if it did this. I really worry that developers might kind of go, yeah, but they're just one person and I've read all of this stuff online. Um, and... I would absolutely say you need to go with people's personal experience because they've lived this, right? They, this is how they use every app. This is how their life works. Um, so sometimes you will work really hard on making something accessible and someone will tell you it's not accessible. That's okay. Uh, that is kind of an incredibly important message that I think people need to you know, listen uh, to to what they're being told rather than maybe what they've learned or think they've learned um, through using tips. Because even things like WACAG, um, you know, despite having a lot of research behind them, they're not always going to be 100% perfect in every situation. That makes a lot of sense. And it's also the argument for having multiple people do your testing because some people yeah. are better... They may or may not be better testers, but they may be they may be providing explanations that are easier for the developer to understand. For, what, for a number of reasons. And so if you have multiple testing, and it doesn't even mean that you have to set a panel of voiceover users up all at once, maybe as the app goes through versions, you test with different people or you try to test different specific things. I mean, you know, this redundancy is probably good in any sort of user testing. Yeah, I'd say so. Take it a bit at a time. Uh, you know, take on people's feedback and, and and work on that as you go along. I think is is a good way of doing really anything. Rob, this has really been great. I've I've absolutely enjoyed talking to you, and I, I can't wait for some both developers and non-developers out there to to hear this episode because I think you've given us some good insights. And before I let you go and give you the chance to plug your excellent book, uh, we have one more thing, uh, which is I'd I'd love to hear about an app that you admire from an accessibility design point of view, one that just that just seems to do it really well. 
there are a lot of them out there. Um, I, I I almost feel like I don't want to answer the, the question, right? Because I'm not an accessibility user. Well, that's not true. I use certain features, but um, it's it's something I can manage without. Um, but um, I think I, I quite like uh, what Twitter do. Um, they they they're not perfect, but they do do quite a bit in terms of making the experience on Twitter more accessible. Um, they use a technique which um, really makes the most out of accessible apps, which a lot of apps don't do. Um, uh, which is or Apple usually call uh, semantic views, which is where you group views together. So maybe a, a few buttons and a piece of text and an image, for example, and they group it together as one thing so that when you're navigating it with voiceover or with switch control, it cuts down on the amount of noise. It makes it a lot quicker to uh, access the, the app and access what's important. And then if you want something that's maybe less important, uh, like sharing the tweet, for example, you can go into that. You can access that, but it's not like a top-level thing. Um, and that, I think, uh, makes a real difference for a lot of people. Great. Twitter app. You heard it here first. Yeah, I, I, I like that app as well. There, there's some Twitter is really interesting because there are some very great, very good, very accessible clients. I've, I've spent a lot of time testing them out. And then there are some that are almost completely inaccessible, which is just unfathomable to me. But uh, yeah, I, I like the Twitter client also. So, Rob, you are the author of Inclusive Mobile Apps. Tell us about the book. Who, who's it for? Uh, what kind of what does it cover? Let us let us know why we should go out and get that book. Sure. So yeah, it's called Developing Inclusive Mobile Apps: uh, Building Accessible Apps for iOS and Android, um, and it's really designed at um, anybody who is involved in the process of making mobile apps. So I'm um, an iOS developer, so it's definitely from a developer's perspective, someone who um, is actually writing the code. Um, and I think that's important from an accessibility point of view because it's um, a lot of accessibility is covered from um, the, the user experience point of view and not always from uh, the point of view of people writing the code. So I think that's, that's a useful perspective to have, but it does cover a lot of different areas of making mobile apps. So you know, if you are involved in, in the product side of things or in the, the design or user experience side of things or in the testing side of things, um, I think this book is definitely going to have something um, that, that's going to help you make more accessible apps. That's certainly what I hope anyway. Uh, and not just accessible apps, but accessibility really is a tool towards inclusion. So um, you know, making apps that, that work better for, for everyone, really, for, for people with um, you know, perhaps uh, different means, um, you know, people of different races and different sexualities and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of stuff there to consider in terms of making an app work um, for as many people as you possibly can. I haven't read the whole thing, but what I have read of it, I've really enjoyed and I've learned a lot from already. So tell people where they can find it and what formats it's available in. Uh, so you can get it from uh, apress.com, apress of the publisher, uh, and they do a, a soft cover version uh, and also a PDF version. Um, and you can also get it from Amazon uh, and they do a Kindle version from there as well. Excellent. So very much accessible if that's needed. The PDF is accessible as far as I'm aware. So that's great. Excellent. Rob, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great to have you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. 
We'll be back with another episode of Parallel in two weeks' time. Until then, you can follow the show at Parallel Pods on Twitter. You can also subscribe at relay.fm slash parallel. Until next time.